that lobby against a free and open internet? Get monkey brains! Monkey Brains is a local internet provider who doesn't sell your data, bind you down with contracts, or trick you with hidden monthly fees. We're honest, local, and 100% net neutral. Residential internet for only $35 a month, business packages starting at $75 a month. Go to monkeybrains.net and sign up today. Asiento, take a seat at Asiento on 21st and Bryant. Meet friends for a drink, have delicious tapas and a relaxed community atmosphere. Asiento honestly is a wonderful place. They have incredible bartenders and board games all over the walls. Trivia on Mondays, Taco Tuesdays, First Wednesday live jazz, live DJs Thursday, parties. The food is darn good special happy hour prices all night long with your mutiny radio comedy festival ticket march 1st through 5th check out the schedule at www.asientosf.com come take a seat i had a date there and it did not go well but it wasn't the fault of the place they're very nice asiento El Rio began her life in 1978 as a leather Brazilian gay bar. We are an LGBTQ plus space who is welcoming to all good people. We actively invest in communities to promote social change. We actively invest in our local arts and music scene to give space for artists. We actively pursue underserved communities in the use of our space. We are an awesome supporter of the 5th Annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival, hosting an incredible offside show. Wednesday, March 4th, 9 to 11 p.m. with LGBTQ plus and allied comics. So come out to 3158 Mission Street at Cesar Chavez, San Francisco. It's open every day at 2 p.m. with an incredible back patio. El Rio is your dive.
and lovers mutiny radio labor and love saturday morning welcome
Good morning, labor and love, people. It's labor and it's love, and it's coming your way from Mutiny Radio at 2781 21st Street, a bona fide community arts center. With video, with radio, with stand-up comedy, with art installations, you name it, we got it. Come on down to Mutiny Radio and find your voice. Want to make sure and remind you about the 5th Annual Mutiny Radio International Comedy Festival. 76 comics from all over everywhere will converge in San Francisco at Mutiny Radio, the headquarters for the underground comedy scene, on March 1st. For more information, come on down to Mutiny Radio. You can contact us on Facebook. And donations are always welcome. I just read somewhere that uh, the Department of Defense, which invests in high-priced boondoggles, uh, murders people all over the world, Finn's uh, U.S. interests, for that read, the rich, 1%, the corporations that make crucial decisions in this world, just got a budget of $738 billion, $738 billion. Amazing. To quote Luis Valdez, hey man, that's a lot of frijoles. And here we are down at Mutiny, where we're all inclusive and we're devoted to people's self-expression. And we're scrambling. $5,000 would be great, so get on the GoFundMe. Throw a little of that money our way. Or better yet, come on down and join the mutiny. Not called Mutiny Radio for nothing. Okay, this is the Labor and Love Show. And my name is Bill Morgan, a.k.a. The Bee. Some people call me the Earth Angel. <laughs> I'm not claiming that. And this is the Labor and Love Show where we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table that is, where you work, you're on the menu. People are going to be slicing up your life and telling you when and where to be 
at what time and how much you can get paid. That is, how much you can get ripped off when you work for them. And never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of laborer. And when I say labor, I mean you. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. Last few weeks, we've uh, sort of neglected to read out our credos. These are things we believe here on this show. Labor and Love. Take a look here. This is from Utah Phillips. Kids don't have a little brother working in the coal mine. They don't have a little sister coughing her lungs out in the looms of the big mill towns of the Northeast. Why? Because we organized We broke the back of the sweatshops in this country. We have child labor laws. Those were not benevolent gifts from enlightened management. They didn't come out about as a blessing of the market. They were fought for. They were bled for. They were died for by working people, by people like us. Kids ought to know that. That's why I sing these songs, Utah Phillips says. That's why I tell these stories. Damn it. No root, no fruit. All right. That's Utah Phillips. we got here. When the penalty for aborting after rape is greater than the penalty for rape, (laughs) that's when you know there's a war on women. Huh? I don't know that, huh? The penalty... For aborting after rape is greater than the penalty for rape itself. Something's going on. How about this one? Can I tell you a secret? I don't even care if they're undocumented immigrants in this country. Without social security numbers, they aren't privy to the welfare people claim they get. The vast majority of them are normal people trying to live a better life, which is, hello, the American dream, isn't it? That's what Wall was bragging about, the land of opportunity. The opportunity for what? The opportunity to get your kids taken away from you. The opportunity to get locked up in a cage. This whole wall, deport the illegals bullshit is just the 1% convincing the working poor to blame a subset of the working poor for the fact that they're all poor. 
Instead of realizing the reason they're all poor is due to the vast income inequality and resource price inflation in combination with wage stagnation. Use your brains. The existence of another poor person is not why you're poor. It's because the people who control everything refuse to increase your wages. Thank you, Jesse Mimmer. I'm really American. So you're not that into politics. Your boss is, your landlord is, your insurance company is, and every day they use their political power to keep your pay low, raise your rent, and deny you coverage. It's time to get into politics. Democratic Socialists of Los Angeles. Okay, those are the credos, those are the things we believe in on this show. Welcome to Labor and Love. Let's have our World Labor Report. The Radio Labor World Labor Report. And let's see, where is it? This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, January 24th, 2020. I'm Mark Boulanger. In the report this week, labor at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. The International Day for Education. Robert De Niro's pro-union acceptance speech. The Labor Start report about union events around the world and singing. Hold that line. Hold that line, sisters, brothers, never we can stand and hold that picket line. Hold that line, hold that line, sisters, brothers, never we can stand and hold that picket line. This is Radio Labor. The world's richest people and activists who want to influence them are attending the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. Many labor leaders are attending the conference, including Sharon Burrell, the General Secretary of the International Trade Union Confederation. The ITUC is the body which represents national union centers such as the Ghana Trades Union Congress. Ms. Burrell was asked why she was attending the World Economic Forum. Well, we bring a team of labor leaders in every year because it's uh, an opportunity to meet with heads of state, with key employers who actually want to change, as opposed to the community employers who think inequality, business as usual, is uh, okay. And of course it allows us to join in the debates from a workers' perspective. What we see today is, of course, a convergence of crisis. 50 years of the World Economic Forum, but a lot of the prosperity and the opportunity that's been driven by that prosperity hasn't been shared. And indeed, it's created the seeds of uh, the destruction, particularly in climate terms, of, uh, the, of the human race itself. So there's a lot of talk, 
but there's not yet the kind of sense of crisis that people are feeling. We're living through an age of anger. It's created by despair. When you look at the ILO report that shows that wages since the early 90s have just gone in a downward trend, a slump, and uh, yet we're three times richer over 20 years than we were you know, before that period, and then that's cumulative from the wealth we've created in the last uh, decade, it's not being shared. So when the IMF chief says inequality, if it's not dealt with, will take us into the next depression, the reality is the economic models failed, and unless we deal with inequality and climate with a new social contract and a new model of economy where prosperity is shared, then that's the future we're creating ourselves. Ms. Burrow was interviewed by Will Goodbody of RTE, Ireland's public broadcaster. January 24th is the International Day of Education. To find out more about the state of education, I talked to Haldis Holst. Ms. Holst is the Deputy General Secretary of Education International. EI represents 30 million teachers and other educators in 172 countries. I asked Ms. Holst if the provision of education and the treatment of education workers has improved or worsened since the last International Day of Education in 2019. She mentions the UN Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs, which include a call to have all children complete primary and secondary schooling by 2030. I think the answer is that it's both worsened and improved. It depends on where you look. But I'd just, you know, like to emphasize that this is only the second time that we celebrate the International Day of Education. It was uh, launched last year, and it's so positive that the international community wants to put the focus on the broad notion of education and the broad importance of education in driving all the sustainable development goals. So from that perspective... I think it's been very good that we've had a year to be allowed to focus on the broad purpose of education because for so long we've been talking about the narrow literacy and numeracy. This is very important, but that's not what solely drives the world forward. At the same time, we see there's still too many children out of school. We don't have the exact numbers from the 24th of January last year to this year, so I can't give you the numbers. But we know that there's still an awful lot of children out of school and that we're not on track reaching our goal by reaching all children by 2030. And we do know that there still are very many governments that are not investing the amount of uh, resources they should in their public education system. And some of them still being tempted to outsource it to private commercial actors, which we believe will not deliver what the International Day of Education is about. So we have some challenges, but we're not giving up. What are some of the problems faced by teachers and other educators? Teachers and educators around the world have uh, many of the same challenges that they've had for a long time. You know, insufficient remuneration, their wages are low, the terms and contracts are precarious. So many are experienced insecurity and don't feel valued or paid decently. But then others who luckily are. Some have the challenge of not getting sufficient training and not getting it in time. We're living in a day and age where education is defined as key to solve our climate change problems. And you can find politicians from very many countries pointing at education. But at the same time, they're not investing in professional development of their teachers 
to be able to deal with such a complex issue with their students. So there's a mismatch here. They're expected to deliver something that they're not being supported into delivering. And at the basis, every child should have the right to be taught by a well-qualified and trained teacher. And I think every teacher wants to be well-qualified and trained. So we do have the challenge of actually training them and qualifying them. And we do have the challenge of teachers who feel that their professional autonomy is being attacked. That are people trying to narrow what they're allowed to teach, how they're allowed to teach it, out of religious or political views, so that you're limiting the democratic nature of education, which is about education holistically, so that you actually have critical citizens that make up their own opinions and will form their own future the way they want it, not the way that we may want them to do it. You've mentioned some of the problems faced by teachers and other educators. How can labor unions help them? Well, I hope and I'm quite sure, and I do have some evidence, that they are supporting them quite significantly around the world. The teaching profession is quite a highly unionized profession, I think, compared to very many other professions. We, we have many countries where you have a, a percentage of being unionized up to 80, 90, 100 percent. And many of our unions within the education sector have a long tradition of having the dual purpose of being professional organizations and more traditionally bread and butter unions. So, of course, they can support their members by being strong actors in advocating for and conducting collective bargaining, social dialogue rights, to try to embed and ensure that there are decent working conditions for their members. But they can also be the professional voice of advocating for quality within because they are the voice of the professionals of how to conduct quality education. The American actor Robert De Niro was celebrated with a Lifetime Achievement Award by SAGA-ACTRA this week. SAGA-ACTRA are the unions which represent workers in the entertainment industries. I thank SAG-AFTRA for tireless, tirelessly fighting on our behalf for work, workplace and economic gains and respect, and that especially bear. <laughs> and that especially bears remembering these days when there's so much hostility towards unions. Political leaders who support unions are more likely to support Affordable Care Act, equitable taxes, humane immigration regulations, a safe environment, a diverse citizenry, reproductive rights, sensible gun control, and fair wages and benefits. Here with his report about union events around the world is Labor Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. Each day, Labor Start's volunteers collect hundreds of news items about workers and their unions from around the world in 31 languages. Here's a small sample of those stories. 
Our top stories section included links to coverage of how a refinery lockout in Canada is uniting that country's divided labor movement, how Australian unions are dealing with the wide range of challenges that the wildfires there pose for workers, from health and safety concerns to the loss of homes and jobs, improvements to the status and rights of migrant workers in Qatar, and a labor rights breakthrough in Albania as a progressive independent trade union movement emerges there. We also had news of strikes and lockouts in dozens of countries. Here are just a few highlights. Strikes against rollbacks were being mounted by Canadian forestry workers, while French workers, especially transport workers, continued their struggle to resist pension cuts, having already won a partial but significant victory when the French government retracted its proposal to increase the retirement age. Walkouts by workers fighting government austerity policies, including the long-running healthcare workers' walkout in Zimbabwe, which ended this week, when a local billionaire donated enough money to the country's hospitals to cover the budget shortfall. A solidarity strike was organized by oil workers in Argentina who won a reprieve for their comrades who were threatened with the loss of their jobs. While in the Philippines, unions were protesting a government plan to use police to prevent what the government called radical union infiltration of the country's special economic zones, and Iranian oil workers were demanding an end to wage theft. Our Working Women pages, now available in eight languages, included stories about the participation of American unions in the National Women's March events there, union opposition to Israel's detention of pregnant migrant workers for months at a time, what women workers stand to lose as the United Kingdom government announces that it will not be retaining any of the EU's worker protections after Brexit, and the long delay in implementing wage equity in many New Zealand workplaces. The free health and safety newswire we offer in cooperation with Hazards Magazine carried stories to hundreds of union websites around the world about some good news from China where workplace deaths in the country's coal mines are declining, a victory for Australian unions fighting to reduce the exposure of workers to toxic smoke from that country's wildfires, and the terrible news that already this year at least four teachers have died at work as terrorists continue to to target schools, students, and teachers in northern Kenya. Currently, Labor Start is running four online actions. Take just a few seconds out of your day and join thousands of trade unionists around the world in helping workers make their lives better, or even help save those lives. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. Now here is Robin Roberts with Hold That Line. Hold that line. Hold that line, sisters, brothers, never weaken, stand and hold that picket line. Hold that line, hold that line, sisters, brothers, never weaken, stand and hold that picket line. We're standing here together, one for all and all for one, and we'll keep right on here standing till our victory we have won. We're united in our struggle, no there's none us can divide, we'll yield nothing to the enemy cause we've justice on our side. So now hold that line, hold that line, sisters, brothers, never we can stand and hold that picket line. 
Hold that line, hold that line. Sisters, brothers, never we can stand and hold that picket line. Hold that line against the World Bank and against the IMF. Hold that line and keep on holding it as long as we have breath. Hold that line against their dogma. Hold that line against their creed. Hold that line to save the future from their plunder and their greed. Now hold that line. Hold that line, sisters, brothers, never we can stand and hold that picket line. Hold that line, hold that line, sisters, brothers, never we can stand and hold that picket line. Hold that line was written by Peter Hicks and Jeff Francis. And that's it. International labor news you can use. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. Woody Guthrie back in the Depression days and uh, tells a story about these the people they call them Okies and Arkies and stuff you know because they came from Oklahoma and, and Arkansas and, and uh, Texas and places and the dust storm came and, and ruined their farms and and their <clears throat> houses and everything they had to get out figured they couldn't do worse said so long it's been good to know you and we're moving west and they got out there, they found all these uh, border police at the California border telling them to go back. They said, we can't go back. It's a man you can't stay here. And this little song tells about uh, what happened to him. Do re mi. Here we go.
Desert sands they roll Get out of that old dust bowl Think they're coming to a sugar bowl But here's what they find Well, police have port of entry safe Boys, you're number 14,000 for the day Hey! And if you ain't got that dough Oh, 
of our show. Man has changed so many lives, Eric Clapton.
Okay, that's it with an extended one, huh? Labor and Love Radio on Mutiny Radio, 2781 21st Street. And that one ended up with Living on Tulsa Time with uh, Cheryl Crow, Every Inch the Rock Star, accompanied ably by Eric Clapton, Living on Tulsa Time. And before that, we had Dwight Yoakam's version, heartfelt version of the Sloop John B. Rye Cooter before that with the Do Re Mi, the Woody Guthrie song. And uh, Rye Cooter there with the king of the Norteño accordion. Flaco Jimenez. This is the Labor and Love Show. It's we're just about half done now. Uh, got a lot of stories coming at you today. Uh, let's take a look at see what we got lined up. Okay. The Oakland Moms, a stunning victory, or is it a victory? Okay, we'll hear from the Oakland Moms who so far have dramatized the plight of homeless people all over the world and the plight of people who are exploited by banks We've been all through this. Should housing be a commodity? No in thunder, say the Oakland moms. Nine instances where Fidel Castro and the, and the Cubans helped black people fight colonialism and white supremacy. As we hit into Black History Month, the Atlanta Black Star Paraeducators join the national uprising of school employees. Labor notes. And what about the Silicon Valley economy? The Silicon Valley economy is here and it's a nightmare. Low pay, soaring rents, and cities littered with e-scooters. Welcome to the future. Labor history in two minutes. A lot of talk this week as the impeachment proceedings against Mr. Trump uh, are carried on. A lot of reflecting back on the founding fathers. Everything wasn't nice and easy for them. It was not an easy sell to the American people. There was never a democratic election where people voted to accept or not accept the U.S. Constitution. And uh, Shays Rebellion was one of the things that forced the ruling class in the U.S. to strengthen the central authority, even though they were all suspicious of it. Evo Morales...
How a farm boy became president of Brazil and lost it. News broke. Can our planet survive capitalism? MTV decoded. Story from there. Beta Caceres. Someone we have not looked at here on uh, Labor and Love Radio. A woman who was murdered for her role in trying to save the environment. Environmental rights, our labor rights, our indigenous rights, our women's rights, our LGBTQ rights. It all ties together labor rights. All those things revolve around the lives of working people. All right, well, let's look at the moms, okay? The Oakland moms who defied a huge multinational corporation called Wedgwood Incorporated that has 96 branches, companies under its, under its wing, huh? Let's see. Oakland Moms, and this is Amy Goodman on Democracy Now! Talking to the Moms. Expected victory for the mothers earlier this week, an offer for them to purchase the property. The major win in the mothers' fight against homelessness and real estate speculation came just a week after Wedgwood Properties forcibly evicted the families, known as Moms for Housing, from the home they'd been occupying for more than two months. The house had been vacant for two years. Police, sheriff's deputies, and a tactical SWAT team with a military robot laid siege to the house to arrest and evict the mothers in the early hours of the morning. Well, one of the moms was live on Democracy Now! from a studio in Berkeley. The heavily militarized action sparked widespread outrage and condemnation and left the mothers and their families homeless once again. But on Monday, Martin Luther King Jr. Day, under growing public pressure, Wedgwood announced it would sell the property at fair price through the Oakland Community Land Trust. The moms will then be able to purchase the house through the trust. This is Carol Fife, director of the Oakland Office for Alliance of Californians for Community Empowerment celebrating the news. It's important to understand the, the, the history of civil disobedience in this country, because every single right that we have today was, was won by people engaging and pushing on what was legal, right? So it's important to not criminalize women who are trying to bring attention and justice and humanity to the, to the masses for everyone. They are not the criminals here. The criminal system is one that allows homelessness. Well, for more, we are joined by Carol Fife Live of ACE. She's joining us again from Berkeley, California, alongside Misty Cross, who's back with us, one of the members of Moms for Housing. We just had them on last week following the eviction. Welcome back to Democracy Now! Um, Misty, explain what happened. Between the agreement? Yes. Or what, what part? 
Yes, if you could explain, I mean, you were evicted from the House, um, battering ram, SWAT team, arrested, and now Wedgwood Properties, which owns the House, um, is saying you can buy it through the land trust? We're still skeptical of that. Um, we're still in negotiations with that, even though we're glad that Wedgwood wants to come forth and do the right thing. We're still skeptical on how this whole agreement came into play. Um, it went on with our mayor, Libby Schaff, behind closed doors. We still don't understand what the agreement was that brought them to the table, being as that we had city council representative Rebecca Kaplan and Nikki Bass to help negotiate um, agreements through the land trust from the beginning. So we're still skeptical of what Regwood really wants to agree on and why are they now trying to settle things after all of this trauma has been caused to us. Carol Fife, you are the director of ACE. You're an organizer, educator, mother, uh, have lived in the Oakland community more than 20 years. Can you explain what exactly has been offered and what this land trust is? Sure. Um, the one demand that the moms had was to negotiate with the Oakland Community Land Trust uh, since day one, November 18th. Uh, This—the position was that the organization, Wedgwood, that purchased this home in a foreclosure sale, sit down and negotiate for um, the sale of the house to the land trust so it would be permanently affordable. And so, after the pressure—and I think it was the militarized response by Alameda County sheriffs, it was just too much to bear, not only for Wedgwood, but also for our mayor, who'd been silent on this issue up until then. Um, we feel like it was all of that combined—the the political pressure, the visi visible media—that uh, made the parties want to come to the table. And also, the, the moms calling out the governor for doing a homeless tour, bringing in um, trailers to address the crisis—13 uh, to 20 trailers to deal with a crisis that really caused them to want to come to the table and negotiate. But we're getting word that uh, Wedgwood may be getting cold feet on the offer, and they may be trying to do improvements to the property so they can sell it to the land trust for market rate, which is not what what the moms are working to negotiate. They want to they want to make sure that the that Wedgwood sells it to the land trust for no more than what they purchased it for, and so if they are engaging in doing any repairs. We're concerned that they may want to increase the sales price, and that's just not—that's just not tenable. Very quickly, Misty, describe what happened uh, on that morning. In fact, we had um, uh, Carol on uh, as uh, the raid went down, the battering ram, um, uh, the— uh, the robot, uh, the SWAT team. You were inside? Yes, I was inside. It was a bunch of mixed of feelings going on at that time. Um, you really couldn't put it all in, in one emotion. It was a lot of mixed feelings, scared, afraid, don't know if they were just going to come straight in with the guns. Um, we were upstairs. We weren't downstairs where the front door was, so 
we didn't want to come running down and run into gunfire. Just a, just a lot of things ran through our mind at that time. But our main thing was to remain calm and to keep addressing that we weren't going to be violent and that this was a civil disobedient act and that we weren't going to be aggressors in this particular moment. And you are where now? Talk about where um, you, the other moms, and the kids are living now. Um, me and the other moms are all working towards permanent housing. Um, we should all be good and settled um, before the beginning of Je uh, February, but we're all working towards that goal. Um, our main thing is to be able to get stable so that we can be mobile um, a little bit more in this movement so that we can get on the ground and really do the footwork that needs to be done in holding people accountable for sending in the aggressive force on the mom and children um, at that time. Carol Fife, as we wrap up the show, can you talk about um, what this possible agreement could mean for the issue of homelessness, not only in Oakland? I mean, we were just there doing a special, at least 90 encampments growing every single day. San Francisco, Los Angeles, it's ground zero for homelessness in this country. Um, what this could mean for um, unhoused people and for the issue of homelessness in the the United States. Do you see this as a model? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But it will be a fight. Uh, I, I've seen on social media that, to the privileged, equity feels like oppression. So because this country has conditioned people to believe that property rights are more important than human rights, it's definitely going to be a fight. But I think this step towards a victory with mom's house is an example that can be duplicated, not only in the Bay Area, but across the country, which is why we're fighting to expand the, uh, the right and uh, the right to housing throughout the state of California with an amendment to the Constitution. So it's going to take all hands on deck, all grassroots people-powered organizations to get on board and help us with this fight. And what about the uh, the uh, tech companies that are driving up prices in San Francisco, real estate prices, saying they're pouring hundreds of millions of dollars to help people around housing? How is it that you still have this growing homelessness problem? And do you think that is helpful or that the state has to be completely involved here? The state definitely has to be involved. And the the money that's pouring into these programs are for homeless, homeless like sustenance programs. They're not transitioning into permanent housing. Right. And Misty and Talani and Dominique are all examples of 211 and all of these different programs not working. Wages have not kept pace with inflation. People are invested in a system that is broken. And so I, it's, it's incumbent upon our legislators to listen to the moms, to listen to people who've been a part of these programs that are just broken, so that we can do something different. If we do not address the entirety of the problem, then it will only persist. We have to address that the fact that income inequality is growing, but rents keep going up. The price of homes keep rising, keeps rising. So if we're not addressing the entire issue, 
then we're just putting Band-Aids on bullet wounds, and I it has to stop. I want to thank you both so much for being with us, Carol Fife, director of the Oakland Office for Alliance of Californians for Community Empowerment, and Misty Cross of Moms for Housing. You can see all our coverage of this issue at democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us. Okay, there's the Moms for Housing. And again, we'll run this through again. This is a protest against capitalism. Under capitalism, homes, land are commodities. And when you have a commodity, it has a price. When it has a price, some people will be able to afford it and some won't. Some people will be able to leave homes empty, four homes, four empty units for every homeless person in Oakland. This is a capitalist property right. So the target here is not, you know, the Wedgwood Corporation. They might, you know, give a little here and there and let moms move into a house here and there. It's about capitalism. It's about land and homes as commodities. And if you recall, a recent fiscal crisis, financial crisis, did the government come in and support homeowners who had lost their homes because of predatory loans? It did not. Who did it swoop in and save? It saved the lenders. It saved the financial institutions. That's where our government is. Now said, just when you see things like this, homelessness is a capitalist production. Okay, so the Oakland moms... How about Evo Morales, just removed, recently removed from office in Bolivia, where he was elected president in 2006. And uh, what happened? Now he's exiled and a rightist government has taken power. Evo Morales is from Al Jazeera. Libya go from its first indigenous president to being led by a right-wing Christian fundamentalist? Is this a coup or democracy being saved? We're going to look at the rise and fall of Evo Morales and what Bolivia's future might look like. First, let's talk about how we got here. In the 16th century, Spain colonized the country now known as Bolivia. They forced the indigenous population to mine valuable metals like silver to enrich the Spanish Empire, while the Catholic Church set up missions to convert these communities. Even after independence, Bolivia was still controlled by a minority elite that tended to identify as European, and Catholicism remained the protected religion of the state. The ruling class still looked down on the indigenous people and viewed them as backwards, keeping them socially and economically marginalized. While some social mobility became possible in the mid-20th century, change accelerated in the 1980s. 
After some government-owned mines were sold off or shut down, many miners lost their jobs. Here's the thing to remember. The miners were known for their labor organizing, and some took those talents with them to their next jobs, farming this, the coca leaf. It's a symbol of Bolivia and a part of many indigenous traditions. It's also the raw ingredient in cocaine. The coca and the cocaine production was allowed to counterbalance the crisis of the Bolivian economy. If you know anything about South America in the 80s, you'll know that this was the height of the U.S. war on drugs. In July this year, Bolivia's president, Victor Paz Estensaro, agreed to mount a joint anti-drugs operation with the United States. The campaign was dubbed Blast Furnace by the Americans, who sent in 170 troops to work with the local police. The Coca Growers Union became a major political force. Farmers, including a young Evo Morales, fought back with hunger strikes and road blockades. Morales became the leader of the union and was elected to Bolivia's National Congress in 1997. A year later, he helped found the Movimiento al Socialismo Party, or MAS. MAS was an alliance of unions, farmers, indigenous organizations, and leftist intellectuals. It surprised a lot of people by coming second in the 2002 elections. The party's support grew over the next few years during protests against the sale of Bolivia's national gas company to U.S. corporations. This led to the resignation of the president in 2005, and MAS won the next elections. For the first time, Bolivia had an indigenous president. Morales' socialist policies grew Bolivia's economy while also reducing inequality. While his closeness to leaders in Cuba and Venezuela made the U.S. uneasy, even the World Bank conceded that Bolivia's economic progress was extraordinary. Between 2006 and 2018, Bolivia's extreme poverty was nearly cut in half, partially thanks to a boom in the price of natural resources that funded policies like a cash transfer program for children, the elderly, and pregnant women. The first president that I see since my childhood is President Aymar que realmente está haciendo mucho por el campo y por la humanidad, por todos, no solo por el campo. In 2009, a new constitution set aside seats in Congress for indigenous groups. It also made Bolivia a secular rather than a Catholic state and recognized the country's 36 indigenous nations. Those people felt that the state was with them for, for the first time in their history. You know, and I think that this is important in terms of national or state building and national identity. It also set presidential term limits to two consecutive terms. Pay attention to that, it's going to be important soon. Naturally, not everyone was happy with these changes. Land-owning families and the business elite, who feared losing power and privilege, opposed Morales' plans for the Constitution as soon as they were announced. A few years later, Morales began facing opposition from some of his own base as well. In 2011, his government proposed a highway that would run through a protected rainforest. Indigenous groups protested by marching to La Paz, the capital. Morales ended up canceling the plan, but brought it back in 2017. Morales had also promised to shift the economy away from resource extraction and towards more sustainable forms of development, but he never actually followed through. 
Later on, his government even began offering pardons for illegal deforestation in the Amazon. There was a clear mandate on the continuation and on following on this extractive strategy because they needed the money in the short term in order to redistribute this money to the population. Now, remember when we said the new constitution limited presidents to serving only two consecutive terms? Well, as Morales near the end of his second term in 2013, he argued that he could actually run a third time. He justified it by saying his first term had been under the old constitution, so he was eligible for a second term under the new one. The Constitutional Court agreed, and so did the voters. Morales coasted to a third term in office. But that wasn't enough. In 2016, Morales proposed a constitutional amendment that would strip away the term limits altogether. This time, voters didn't agree. Morales lost a referendum on the amendment. But the court, which opponents said was packed with supporters of Morales, struck down the term limits anyway. In plain English, they ruled that term limits restrict the rights of voters to choose their candidates as many times as they want, and the rights of politicians to run for office. By the time of the 2019 elections, Morales had been president for 13 years. Would Bolivia give him a fourth term? As results started coming in, it seemed like Morales wasn't going to win outright. It looked like there would be a runoff between him and Carlos Mesa, the second place candidate. But then, preliminary results stopped coming in for 24 hours. When they resumed, Morales had enough votes to avoid that runoff. The opposition began protesting in different parts of the country, alleging there was election fraud. Morales asked the Organization of American States to audit the election result and said he would abide by the OAS's recommendations. On November the 10th, the OAS said the election had, quote, irregularities. Morales agreed to repeat the election. But Bolivia never got that far. The military suggestion that he resign immediately before he did so was in direct violation of the Bolivian Constitution, which does not allow them to express any opinion and forces them to always obey the dictates of the civilian government. After resigning, Morales fled to Mexico, and a right-wing senator called Janine Añez took over as president, with the Constitutional Court backing her claim. She had not been one of the most prominent members of the Senate, but she had already received criticism for her racist tweets, for her anti-abortion stance, for her strong, highly conservative opinions. Añez also waved a large Bible as she was sworn into office in a callback to Bolivia's past as a Catholic state. Añez gave the military immunity from prosecution. Since the election, dozens have been killed and hundreds injured. Añez's unelected government has also threatened to arrest members of MAS. Some security forces have ripped off indigenous flags from their uniforms. Two weeks after Morales was forced out, Añez passed a law to hold new elections. The interim government says it will allow MAS to run a candidate, but not Morales. They've called the former president a terrorist and said he'll be arrested if he returns to Bolivia. While Morales has a complicated legacy, 
It's undeniable that Bolivia, and especially its indigenous people, made a lot of progress during his time in office. Now this progress and Bolivian democracy hangs in the balance. There's the uh, Al Jazeera version of what happened in and what is happening in Bolivia. Um, the forces of reaction don't give in. Even when they're defeated democratically, they can't give up their rights. We're talking about property rights again. Property owners. The property property rights situation is the same as here in Oakland and in Bolivia. Right-wing government, quote-unquote Christian government, anti-abortion. We'll see. Follow the situation. One needs to know what's going on. Take a look at the Silicon Valley economy. It's a nightmare. Vanessa Bain was less than a year into her gig as an Instacart shopper when the company announced it would no longer allow tipping on its app. Instacart instead began imposing a 10% service fee that replaced the previous default tip of 10%. The change had no impact on customers who could be forgiven for assuming that the new fee would still go to workers who shopped for their groceries and delivered them to their homes. They thought they were still tipping us, Bain said. Instead, it was going to the company. Bain believed that the gig work would provide her with financial stability and schedule flexibility to take care of her young daughter. This is the promise you'll hear on the uh, advertising. Work whenever you want. You can use the extra income, huh? However, as independent contractors, Bain and her husband don't receive sick leave or holidays. And in practice, be your own boss, promise of the gig economy instantly vanishes the moment you take on a gig job. It is instead a system that relentlessly dictates your schedule. We are controlled. We are treated like employees, but without the perks. Jennifer Cotton, a Los Angeles area-based shopper, told me, is in the New Republic by uh, Leah Russell. We're told what order to deliver in and when to go. The indignities of the gig economy are well established at this point as a laissez-faire labor practices of companies like Uber, Instacart, DoorDash, and Lyft draw more and more scrutiny.
What is less widely acknowledged is how the gig economy interacts with other trends in California and forces unleashed by Silicon Valley. Rising housing costs, choked infrastructure, to make life hell for those who live at or near the epicenter of America's technology industry. Together, they constitute a nightmare vision of what the world would look like if it were run by our digital overlords. As they sit atop a growing underclass that does their shopping and drives their cars, all the while able, barely able to make ends meet. So these gig economies were at the service of the very, very wealthy and the very, very prominent. <sighs> California's economy looks like it's humming. Unemployment 3.9%, record low, home of some of the world's most valuable companies. Median household income has grown about 17% since 2011 compared with about 10% nationally. But the state's affluence is spread unevenly, resulting in an increasingly bifurcated economy that privileges the wealthy at the expense of the middle class. In San Francisco and San Diego, this is particularly apparent. Costs of living there are higher than elsewhere in the country, exacerbated by a housing market that, thanks to an influx of cash from the tech sector, has become prohibitively expensive for many people and has also spiked homelessness. Read it in the New Republic. It's, uh, the heading is the Silicon Valley economy is here and it's a nightmare. So instead of delivering a better life for people, all these riches have allowed the establishment of a service economy. A service economy fueled or peopled by workers who have no rights in the workplace because, as the Trump Labor Relations Board has iterated, reiterated, you're not an employee, you're an independent contractor. That means we give you your money and you get health care. You have to get housing and you have to take whatever you're given. In a few places, of course, situations like this mandate the development of unions and worker organizations to combat it. All right. Uh, I'm going to play this history of that 
it looks like, you know, the way um, the hearings are going of, uh, of Mr. Trump's impeachment, and everything was just hunky-dory. There were these great men who decided that uh, they were going to start a country and there was going to be freedom for all and there was no problem with it. Not true. Hear about Shays' Rebellion, January 25th, 1787. A revolt of farmers. Um, I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1787. That was the day known as Shays' Rebellion. The United States was a new nation, and the Constitution had not yet been written. The Revolutionary Army had won the war with Britain, but the young nation was mired in debt. During the aftermath of the war, more farmers moved into western Massachusetts. Many of them incurred high levels of debt in setting up their farms. Due to economic hard times, the farmers found it difficult to repay their debts. Local sheriffs began to seize farms and even jailed some farmers. Anger amongst the farmers began to rise. They held meetings to discuss how to respond. Many saw the government's actions as an echo of the very type of tyranny they had stood up against during the Revolutionary War. They petitioned Boston for economic relief, but their requests fell on deaf ears. The farmers began to protest the courts, disrupting the proceedings. For six months, the farmers waged organized resistance. One of the men whose farm was threatened for repossession was Daniel Shays. Shays was a former captain in the Continental Army who had fought against the British. He organized a force of a thousand men. The men marched on the debtor's court in Springfield and the arsenal located there. The governor of Massachusetts called out armed troops in response. These troops were funded by wealthy merchants from the eastern part of the state. And so on this day, four of Shea's men were killed as the troops attempted to forcibly remove the rebels. By February, the rebellion had been crushed. The rebellion influenced the writing of the U.S. Constitution, as some drafters were convinced that a strong central government was needed to quell further uprisings by the working class. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com. About uh, one more, a boycott against Nestle. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1984. That was the day the Nestle Corporation agreed to terms in order to end a seven-year international boycott against the company. The boycott was over the unsafe and dangerous ways that Nestle marketed and sold its baby formula in third world countries. The boycott began in the United States in Minneapolis, Minnesota. It spread abroad to Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, eventually reaching 10 countries. The campaign was largely grassroots in 
nature, with local activists organizing different actions. In Massachusetts, boycotters ceremoniously dumped Nestle products in a Boston Nestea party. Finally, after seven years, the grassroots organizing met its goal. Nestle agreed to follow international standards for baby formula marketing. Boycotts are an important way for consumers and workers to protest corporate practices and social injustice. There have been several very influential boycotts in our nation's history. In the 1950s, the Montgomery bus boycott challenged racial discrimination in one southern city and helped to launch the civil rights movement and empower a generation to fight for equality. In the 1960s, Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta of the United Farm Workers called for a boycott of grape and lettuce growers in California. That boycott helped to bring national attention to the fight to improve pay and working conditions for Latino farm workers in California. In the 1980s, a campaign against goods made in South Africa was a stand against that country's apartheid system. In 1984, the members of the International Longshore and Warehouse Union Local 10 refused to unload a South African ship in the port of Oakland. Their action stood as a powerful statement of international workers' solidarity for racial justice. Boycotts have long helped to change the course of history as citizens stand together in solidarity. All right, that was labor history in two, two examples of working people flexing their power. Shays Rebellion. There's also a whiskey rebellion in Pennsylvania after the adoption of the Constitution. And the president himself, Big George, led the troops into Pennsylvania to put down a rebellion there. I want to play this video now about Berta Cáceres, someone we're, we have not mentioned before in this show, and that's not a good thing. Who was Berta Cáceres? and irregularities. Joining me now to look at Berta Cáceres' legacy, her murder trial, and today's situation in Honduras is Karen Spring. She joins us from Tegucigalpa, Honduras, where she coordinates the work of the Honduras Solidarity Network. Thanks for joining us today, Karen. Thank you very much, Greg, for having me. So let's start with the trial. Um, Amnesty International released a statement on Thursday saying that not everyone responsible for the murder of Berta Cáceres has been brought to justice yet. What happened in the trial and what are the unresolved issues surrounding it? Sure. So the trial that um, finished late last year, um, it was seven people um, of eight were found guilty of participating or being co-authors of Berta Cáceres' murder. And uh, four of those people were found, uh, were convicted for uh, the attempted murder against the Mexican activist Gustavo uh, Castro. Um, and so one of the people that were accused were uh, relieved of all charges because they were unable to um, uh, prove that he was involved. Um, but there's a lot still to be done in the case. Um, and although there's seven uh, co-authors that have been found guilty, um, there are still um, the intellectual authors or the masterminds of uh, the, uh, or the people that either paid or that were part of coordinating the efforts to not only kill Berta, but also um, basically uh, criminalize her and persecute her um, for several years uh, leading up to her assassination. 
And so uh, COPIN, which is the organization she co-founded, which is now headed by her daughter um, and her family, um, they are still demanding that uh, the president of the company, DESA, that was responsible for building the dam, uh, be brought to justice as well. And they also say that there is a very wealthy family um, that is behind uh, paying for her murder and helping plan it. And so um, although there's been seven co-authors uh, convicted, uh, there's still um, people out there that have uh, involvement um, in her murder, and so there's, uh, we're still waiting for justice in many ways for Berta. Now, it's been almost 10 years since the 2009 coup against uh, President Manuel Zelaya, who was forcefully, forcefully removed from office with U.S. support. Many activists in Honduras point to this event as a key moment in Honduran history. Give us an idea as to how the human rights situation for activists has evolved since then until now. The human rights situation since the 2009 coup that was supported by the U.S. and Canada um, has uh, basically, it, uh, it led to a downward spiral of uh, human rights violations, of um, criminalization, threats, attacks, and assassinations against journalists, uh, lawyers, um, indigenous leaders, environmentalists. Um, and unfortunately, that downward spiral has not stopped. Um, and mostly because in 2017, at the end of at the end of the year of 2017, there was another crisis in the country that was sort of sparked by the 2009 coup. That was the electoral fraud. Um, and since then, the country has again uh, uh, is now in another sort of uh, it, it, the crisis has deepened. Um, and so uh, the situation remains probably the worst I've ever seen it in the 10 years that I've been working here. Um, there's the, the justice system is used unequally um, against and it goes after people that uh, like Berta, um, but that are people from other communities that are trying to stop hydroelectric dams and mining projects that severely damage their communities. And any sort of human rights work of people that speak out about what is happening here. Um, and so the situation remains very dire in Honduras. Hmm. Uh, speaking of the election in 2017, um, as you mentioned, it took place among uh, massive accusations of fraud. Still, the U.S. and its allies accepted the result. Now, recently, Hernandez's brother was arrested on charges of drug trafficking. Is the government doing anything about drug trafficking and corruption, uh, and how is it generally dealing with this issue of uh, what seems to be a growing corruption scandal? So that's a really interesting question. If you, in, in the international media and the Honduran media, uh, Juan Orlando Hernandez uh, claims that he is fighting an all-out battle against drug trafficking um, and corruption in his government. Um, but it, it remains... Um, really unclear how that is is happening given that his brother was uh was was arrested in the United States and he was accused and he's now in prison awaiting trial of being uh, basically a, a leader of uh, a drug cartel and coordinating cartels all over the region um and so he remains he Juan Orlando Hernandez uh, has this discourse of fighting crime of fighting drug trafficking um, but nobody can seem to explain how he has that discourse while his brother was responsible, one of the largest drug dealers or drug traffickers in the country. Um, but what is happening is that discourse uh, of trying to fight gangs, of trying to fight drug trafficking, is used by the Canadian United States government to sort of justify more and more support for security, for arms. 
um, for support for the justice system that is is not uh, working, is not functional, extremely high levels of corruption and impunity. Um, and so the the efforts to make Honduras more secure seems to be um, uh, it seems to be used uh, against people that are speaking out against the government, people like Berta Cáceres or people that are inspired by Berta Cáceres that remain speaking out against the same things she did. Um, and so they use that whole apparatus against those people. Um, and that's very clear here in Honduras. And people are very clear about where that money goes, where the security, who is uh, who the security apparatus serves and who it is against. And that's mostly the entire Honduran population um, that is not in agreement with uh, what the government is doing and the high levels of impunity and corruption. Well, actually, that brings me to my last question. Uh, returning to Berta Cáceres, what would you say has been her legacy for Honduras? That's a really hard question because um, Berta was a, a very unique um, and inspirational uh, activist. Um, she was uh, unique in the sense that she had a level of leadership um, in Honduras um, and in the world that now, you know, when you look at how many people have demanded justice for her assassination, uh, I think the legacy that she left is uh, people here in Honduras say that she wasn't killed and that she, her, her legacy and her message and her fight have, have multiplied. And she wasn't killed. That What they say in Spanish is that she was planted and she keeps growing and growing um, throughout the years. And so m many people and many communities um, that are fighting against um, mining companies and hydroelectric dams and tourist projects that are mostly foreign um, investments in the country, they will often cite her as the, one of their reasons and inspirations um, for continuing to speak out against the uh, neoliberal development economic model um, that has been the main type of development model, so-called development model, that the government continues to implement despite widespread discontent. And so Bertha's uh, face, paintings of her appear all over the country, spray painted on the walls. She's present and her picture and her family and her legacy are present in all public protests, including the, the ones that occurred after the electoral crisis in 2017. And so it's very much true that her legacy has multiplied and that her assassination has led other communities in Honduras to fight harder to defend their natural resources and their territories. Okay. Well, we're going to leave it there for now. I'm speaking to Karen Spring, coordinator of the Honduras Solidarity Network. Thanks again, Karen, for having joined us today. Thank you very much, Greg. And thank you for joining. Okay, that was a real news show about Berta Cáceres, about a year, a year old, uh, shot by a group of gunmen in her hometown. Uh, this is the B, and it's about time for us to get out of here. Let me remind you again about the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival 2020. Dead men tell no jokes is this year's motto. 76 national comedians, 66 live comedy shows, streaming radio and podcasts, 10 to 10, Sunday to Saturday at Mutiny Radio FM, that's right here. 2781 21st Street. Come on down and get involved. A special live comedy show at El Rio, Wednesday night, March 4th. 
And will all of us here at Mutiny Radio will be involved in that? All of us, pro well, a lot of us programmers will be hosting some of the comics who will be here to entertain you. So it's all happening here at Mutiny Radio. This is the B. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table, that is, where you work, you're on the menu. And never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. When I say labor, I mean you. Okay, keep on trucking, everybody. I'll see you next week. Stay tuned now for... Scott Walker, the czar of flat, black plastic. your boy Sifo here here to let you know that the fifth annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival is March 1st through 7th 2020 with special podcasts and comedy shows 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. all week. Get your tickets now on Eventbrite. Just search Mutiny Radio and get ready for 76 comics from all over the U.S. coming for 66 programs in seven days all here at 2781 21st Street in the heart of the mission. Or if you can't be with us, listen live or podcast from anywhere in the world at www.mutinyradio.fm Join us March 1st to 7th for these amazing events. What kind of a future? Claw Tigers, we fight for motorcyclists. We're not just motorcycle lawyers, we're part of the riding community. Claw Tigers watches over riders. If you're injured in a motorcycle accident, we'll help you get your motorcycle repaired or replaced and assist you with your damaged gear too. We're by your side every step of the way. With the Law Tigers, you never ride alone. If you're injured in a motorcycle accident, call 1-800-LAW-TIGERS or visit us on the web at lawtigers.com. The Law Tigers, California's motorcycle lawyer. Victor Terrace, Harris Law Firm, LLP, 180 Circle, Suite 300, Sacramento, California, 95834. San Francisco Mutiny Radio San Francisco Mutiny Radio Listen to live streaming radio Or 
can listen on the go. Listen to live streaming radio. Or download a podcast and you can listen on the go. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. Mutinyradio.fm. Why not make a donation? Mutinyradio.fm. Streaming live the station. Mutinyradio.fm. District of the Mission. Mutinyradio.fm. Mutinyradio.fm. Listen to live streaming radio or download a podcast and you can listen on the go. San Francisco. MutinyRadio.fm. Hit the donate button, stream them live, download a podcast, have some fun! Gold Cadillac with the white material. And, and I started to do some thinking. Black, black, black. I'm in the freeway. Really good time. Black, black, black. I'm a total from Charlie here. Yeah. I have a report here, Henry, from your, uh, from your chief nurse, Major O'Houlihan. She makes some accusations, Henry. I, I find pretty hard to believe. Uh, the dude minds, man. I'm Michael Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Spiegelman. Join us every Sunday, 2 to 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on MutinyRadio.fm for... Let's watch a full-length movie on... YouTube. We watch the best movies that... uh, Aren't they good? Well, they're chosen by Uh, Here's his theme song again. Bye. Okay, bye. Watch What's happening? This is your boy, Rob Edwards. I'm here to tell you about the 5th Annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival. It's March 1st through the 7th, 2020, with special podcasts and comedy shows 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. all week long. Get your tickets on Eventbrite. Just search Mutiny Radio and get ready for 76 comments from all over the U.S. Coming for 66 programs in seven days, all here at 2781 21st Street in the Deep Mission, or listen live or podcast from anywhere in the world at mutinyradio.fm. Join us March 1st through the 7th for these amazing events. Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be 
Like in front of an audience? Like other than like squirrels, dogs, and dead peasants? Oh, shoot. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things to you before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dag nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! <laughs> Hungry for a burger? Mutiny Radio thinks you'll find the best burger in San Francisco at Counter Offer, located inside Bender's Bar and Grill. Counter Offer's menu aims to please your drunk face. Tater tots are served daily. On Tuesday nights, Counter Offer serves specials off the Taco Bell menu, only better. You can enjoy your favorite Taco Bell item without the guilt. Counter Offer uses only fresh ingredients and never store-bought shit. Special ingredients are made from scratch daily, including beans, ketchup, mustard, habanero sauce, and ranch dressing. Counter Offer even serves vegan mac and cheese. All of this great food is served 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. daily and until 11 p.m. on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Counter Offer is located inside Bender's Bar and Grill at 806 South Van S. Be sure to tell them Mutiny sent you. Counter Offer, baby. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of Mutiny Radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk, MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Subliminal SF visual and auditory mind control brings you the best coolest t-shirt and hoodie designs and mind-bending local bands and shows at venues all over San Francisco and the Bay Area. Subliminal SF. What you 